Hello everyone and welcome to the December 19th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A Los Angeles Superior Court jury ordered HealthNet to pay more than $14 million, including nearly $7 million in compensatory damages and $7.5 million in punitive damages to a woman who alleged the healthcare giant caused her to become addicted to opiate pain medication, which she was prescribed only after she had already unnecessarily waited months for a health net to provide timely referrals for a surgery she needed. The plaintiff in this case was Elaine Courtney, who received an urgent referral to a colorectal specialist for a surgical consult back in February 2017. According to the health plan, an appointment should have been made available for her within 96 hours, but she was told that the correct specialist was not available to her under her HealthNet Medi-Cal plan, and she was instead sent back to a general surgeon that she had already seen that was admittedly not specialized to fix her problem. Nonetheless, HealthNet had 25 colorectal surgeons available in its Southern California network, but refused to allow her access to any of them. And Miss Courtney was made to wait nearly six months until she could see a qualified specialist in August. And even then, she experienced additional delays from the health plan. The specialist doctor's surgical requests were denied on five separate occasions over four months because of issues with the network. Ms. Courtney repeatedly reached out to HealthNet pleading for help, but it did nothing to overturn the denials, and she was not able to get in for a surgery until December 13th. That was a 10-month delay. As a result, she became dependent on opioid pain medication that was first prescribed to her months into the delay while she waited for HealthNet to arrange and provide access to specialists while she suffered intense pain. During the trial, the HealthNet attorneys maintained that HealthNet was not responsible for providing or authorizing her care and that when she raised issues about her treatment through the grievance process of her health plan, HealthNet responded promptly and authorized the requested treatment. But it seems by the huge $14 million verdict in her favor that the jury did not agree with that argument. Her attorney called the case an important one for the health insurance industry and for Medi-Cal recipients. And in employment law litigation, the Court of Appeal concluded that a timely arbitration request is required by an employer who is involved in litigation with an employee in multiple forums to avoid waiving its arbitration rights. The employer in this case, Desert Regional Medical Center, or DMRC, is an acute care hospital owned and operated by a subsidiary corporation of Tenant Healthcare. Nurses Lee Miller, Lynn Fontana, and Renita Romero 
had been employed by them pursuant to a collective bargaining agreement negotiated between the employer and the union, which includes provisions governing rest breaks, meal periods, and payment of missed break premiums, and also sets forth mandatory grievance and arbitration procedures which must be followed when processing disputes involving interpretation or application of the collective bargaining agreement. Each of the three nurses also signed an employment arbitration agreement and agreed to submit non-collective bargaining agreement covered claims or disputes to arbitration before the American Arbitration Association. In March 2015, the union filed a meal and rest break grievance against the hospital on behalf of all of their registered nurses, alleging ongoing violations of the collective bargaining agreement and California state law. The grievance was not resolved, so in May 2015, the union sent a letter requesting arbitration of the unresolved meal and rest period grievance under the collective bargaining agreement for all of the nurses. And the three individual nurses in this case filed their own individual claims with the labor commissioner, alleging violations of labor code and wage order five. Then in February and March 2019, the three nurses' individual claims proceeded with the labor commissioner over a several-day hearing as the parties presented documentary evidence and its arguments. After this hearing, the Labor Commissioner ordered the hospital to pay Nurse Miller more than $64,000, Nurse Romero nearly $59,000, and Nurse Fontana more than $51,000 for unpaid wages and interest. The following August, the hospital filed a de novo appeal of the Labor Commissioner's order awarding unpaid wages in the Riverside County Superior Court, and then promptly attempted to remove the appeal to the Federal District Court, which later remanded the case back to the State Court. Then in 2020, the employer filed petitions to compel arbitration of the individual nurses' claims and stay, stay the trial court action they had filed. And in August 2020, the union and the hospital agreed to arbitrate the union group grievance. The trial court denied the hospital's petition to compel arbitration on the individual nurses' actions based on a finding that they waived their right to arbitrate. The Court of Appeal affirmed the order in the unpublished case of Desert Regional Medical Center versus Miller. The principal question on appeal is whether the employer waived its contractual right to arbitrate the nurses' individual claims. The court noted that there is no single test under state or federal law that delineates the nature of the conduct that will constitute a waiver of arbitration. In the past, California courts have found a waiver of the right to demand arbitration in a variety of contexts, ranging from situations in which the party seeking to compel arbitration has previously taken steps inconsistent with an intent to invoke arbitration, to instances in which the petitioning party has unreasonably delayed in undertaking the procedure. 
Here, the court noted that the hospital did not timely raise its right to arbitrate the nurse's individual claims or take affirmative steps to implement the process. It delayed filing its petition to compel arbitration for over four years, which included at least three years from when the nurses submitted their individual claims with the labor commissioner, until the labor commissioner decided the claims in July 2019. Then in August of 2019, the hospital attempted to remove its state court action appealing the labor commissioner's decision to federal court without success. Because of the employer's delay for several years and active participation in litigation over those years, the trial court did not err in ruling that the hospital waived any right to have had it may have had to arbitrate the nurses' individual claims. And now our crime report. Lokesh Tantuweya, a former San Diego neurosurgeon, was sentenced to 60 months in federal prison for accepting $3.3 million in bribes for performing spinal surgeries at the now-defunct Long Beach Hospital, whose owner, Michael Drobot, was imprisoned for committing a massive workers' compensation fraud. Tatuea pleaded guilty last September to one count of conspiracy to commit honest services mail and wire fraud and receiving illegal payments for health care referrals. He has been in federal custody since May 2021 after he was found to have violated the terms of his pretrial release and was deemed to be a flight risk. Pacific Hospital specialized in surgeries, especially spinal and orthopedic procedures. Drobot, who was sentenced to 63 months in prison for his crimes in this scheme, conspired with doctors, chiropractors, and marketers to pay kickbacks and bribes in return for the referral of thousands of patients to his hospital for spinal surgeries, paid by the California Workers' Compensation System. During its final five years, the scheme resulted in the submission of more than $500 million in medical bills for spine surgeries involving kickbacks. To date, 23 defendants have been convicted for participating in the kickback scheme with Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. And in regulatory news, the California Attorney General joined a coalition of 17 attorneys general, as well as state and local labor agencies, in support of a U.S. Department of Labor proposal to strengthen federal protections against worker misclassification by employers. Worker misclassification occurs when a firm inappropriately treats its employees as independent contractors, thereby avoiding legal obligations such as minimum wage, overtime, payroll taxes, and workers' compensation insurance. Over 26 states, including California, after passing AB5, employ variations of the ABC test, which generally provides that individuals who provide services in exchange for remuneration Our employees, unless all three of the ABC elements are proven. But in 2019, the National Labor Relations Board adopted a standard that allowed employers to classify workers as independent contractors 
if they can demonstrate that the workers appear to have access to an entrepreneurial opportunity, similar to that of running an independent business. The 2019 standard set aside a prior, more stringent test. Then, during President Donald Trump's administration, the Department of Labor issued a final rule clarifying when workers are independent contractors versus employees. The Trump-era rule applied an economic reality test that primarily considers whether the worker operates his own or her own business or is economically dependent on the hiring entity. The Department of Labor standard was slated to take effect in March 2021, but President Biden's administration issued rules delaying and ultimately withdrawing the Trump-era standard. However, the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, a group that represents Uber, Lyft, and other gig economy businesses, and other similar business groups, convinced a federal judge in the Eastern District of Texas to reinstate the Trump administration rule, finding that the Biden administration's actions violated the Administrative Procedure Act. California and the Coalition of Attorneys Generals now urge the Department of Labor to act swiftly on its proposal to rescind and replace the Trump-era rule regarding independent contractor status. Thus, the rules defining what is and is not an independent contractor remain controversial and to some extent uh, volatile and uncertain in many jurisdictions. The final rule by the Department of Justice in the current chapter of the classification battle continues, with now 17 attorney generals supporting a more liberal definition of employee status. In the United States, workers' access to bereavement leave in the event of a tragic loss of a family member is inconsistent or non-existent, and there is no federal law requiring that employers provide bereavement leave. This left it up to employers and employees to make informal arrangements. But a new law in California, AB 1949, has added bereavement rights for employees in our state. Effective this January 1st, private employers with five or more employees and public sector employers are required to provide employees with at least 30 days of service, up to five unpaid days of bereavement leave upon the death of a family member. The five days of bereavement leave must be provided in addition to the 12 weeks of family and medical leave permitted under the California Family Rights Act and the days of bereavement leave need not be consecutive. The new law defines a family member to mean a spouse or a child, parent, sibling, grandparent, grandchild, domestic partner, or parent-in-law. The bereavement leave shall be completed within three months of the date of death of the family member. If requested by the employer, the employee shall provide documentation of the death of the family member within 30 days of the first day of the leave. And the employer shall maintain the confidentiality of any employee requesting leave, including any documentation provided to the employer. The Office of Self-Insured Plans, that's OSIP, 
published its summary of the fiscal year 2021-22 public self-insured data, which provides an initial snapshot of the volume of claims, total loss payments, and total incurred losses for the 12 months ending June 30, 2022. These employers provided workers' compensation coverage to just over 2 million California public workers, whose wages and salaries totaled more than $145 billion. California's public self-insured workforce increased less than 1% in the 12 months of this study, but the total number of work injuries and illnesses claimed jumped 35%. A CWCI analysis of this data shows that with claims volume up steeply, total workers' compensation paid losses for cities, counties, and other public agencies in California increased by 31.5% to a record $585 million, while total incurred losses, that's paid plus reserves, rose 19.3% to nearly $1.68 billion. With the huge surge in claims, many of which were likely COVID-19 claims, public self-insured's total claim payment at the first report increased by $140 million to $585 million, up 31.5% from the comparable figure. That was the eighth consecutive increase in total public self-insured paid losses. With the surge in lost time cases, indemnity claims share of the public self-insured claims increased from 62.3% to 63.7%, while less expensive medical-only claims decreased. The incurred loss data followed the same pattern as the paid loss data. In addition to the public self-insured data, OSIP also compiles private self-insured claims data, but it is reported on a calendar year basis. So updated figures from California's private self-insurers will be released this summer. The National Council on Compensation Insurance, NCCI, just published the result of its annual survey of top insurance executives. The summary of responses is intended to provide general sense of the most frequently mentioned items of concern and the underlying questions that these executives have regarding the future. Rate adequacy is always a concern although premium rates and loss costs have been declining for years in most states. The workers' comp line has retained an historically low combined ratio. Carriers expressed uncertainty about what the next five years will look like, including whether this downward train will change and whether a change will result in loss cost rate level increases. Many factors are in play that affect a carrier's ability to maintain underwriting profitability, such as medical cost concerns, labor market dynamics, emerging risks, reserving practices, and general inflation. These executives express concerns that when trends, which have driven rates down for many years, eventually turn, the industry may not be, may not be able to react quickly. 
Carriers noted concerns about the rising cost of medical treatments, especially continuous advancement in medical technology and treatments. When carriers do not see an associated rise in premium rates, it can be disconcerting, in the sense that rates and costs could get too far out of sync. Trends in medical costs reflect changes in the mix of injuries and the types of services used to treat them, as well as changes in the prices of those services. And while medical prices continue to uh, contribute to general inflation, they do not grow at the same rate. The respondents to the survey also voiced uncertainty surrounding things like the labor market, an economic slowdown or recession, interest rates, and investment returns, since they all point to a challenging economic landscape for carriers. The possibility of a recession weighs on some respondents, considering the impact that unemployment and stagnant job growth could have on industries they serve. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau has released a new report, on the medical characteristics of cumulative trauma claims. CT claims have always been a key cost driver, mostly because of the complexity of having injury exposure spanning multiple years, litigation and frictional costs from liens, and medical legal services that are incurred on continuous trauma claims. Prior to WCIRB research has suggested that as much as 40% of all CT claims are filed on a post-employment or post-termination basis. Post-termination CT claims are filed after the termination of employment, and they tend to be more litigious and involve more frictional costs than regular CT claims. This new study analyzes both CT and post-termination CT claims, focusing in on the characteristics of medical treatment primary medical diagnoses, and underlying drivers for frictional costs. Some of the key findings showed that indemnity claims are the key driver of CT claim losses. Average medical severity on CT indemnity claims starts off lower than on non-CT indemnity claims, but eventually grows larger as the claims mature. CT indemnity claims have a higher payment share for medical legal and medical liens services than non-CT claims, mostly driven significantly by higher levels of utilization. The share of medical payments for medical liens and medical legal services on CT claims is on average three times the payment shares of these services are on non-CT claims and the average paid per medical legal evaluation is more than 20% higher on CT claims than on non-CT claims. In addition, there are over 60% more evaluations on CT claims, which leads to a significantly higher overall medical legal paid per claim. CT claims are more likely to involve soft tissue injuries and mental psychiatric conditions. About a third of closed CT claims had a medical diagnosis shift, mostly to soft tissue injuries, by the end of the claim life. 
It takes significantly longer for CT indemnity claims to receive the first medical treatment, mostly due to late reporting and relatively high share of CT claims starting with liens or medical legal services as the initial service. Post-termination CT claims filed following large layoffs tend to concentrate on the manufacturing and service sectors and in the Los Angeles region. And finally, CT indemnity claims close consistently more slowly than non-CT indemnity claims. And CMS is expected to be more aggressive in its effort to seek reimbursement from workers' compensation claim administrators next year. Under the Medicare Secondary pay, Payer Law, which was first enacted back in 1980 and updated many times since then, Medicare may not pay claims when another payment is available or reasonably expected to be available such as workers' compensation paid medical care for an industrial injury. When a primary payer plan does not or cannot pay promptly, for instance, when it's contesting liability, Medicare can make a conditional payment on behalf of a beneficiary for which it can later seek reimbursement from the primary plan. If Medicare pays and then seeks reimbursement only to be refused, the United States then can then sue the primary plan to recover its payment. And now the Office of the Inspector General, that's OIG, is responsible for the oversight of that process. An OIG audit took place more than a decade ago, determined that CMS had not recovered $332 million of the $416 million of Medicare overpayments that it had identified in audit reports in 2009. And now a new OIG audit published this summer reflects that CMS conditional payment collection results remain inadequate, even after a decade of efforts to improve its track record. The OIG verified that CMS collected only $120 million of the $498 million in sustained Medicare overpayments during its current audit period. In addition, CMS did not take corrective action in response to all of the recommendations made in the prior audit report published back in 2009. The new report concluded that the combination of a substantial balance of uncollected overpayments, inadequate policies and procedures, and unimplemented recommendations increased the risk that CMS will not collect millions of dollars owed to the Medicare trust funds in the next few years. Thus, in this 2022 report, a number of recommendations were again made. One of the many recommendations this year by OIG is to make changes to pay our appeals of workers' compensation Medicare set-aside settlement proposals. Under this regulation, as it is currently written, a party may request that a CMS contractor reopen its initial determination or redetermination within one year from the date of the initial determination or redetermination for any reason or within four years from the date of the initial determination or redetermination for good cause. 
Some industry experts expect that the time frame for appeals is likely to be shortened. Additionally, CMS announced its intent to solicit applicants for a new compensation review contractor that will evaluate workers' compensation Medicare set-aside arrangement proposals. And in medical news, the National Academy of Medicine has called diagnostic error a blind spot for modern medicine and improving diagnosis a moral, professional, and public health imperative. It said that diagnostic errors persist throughout all settings of care and can need to continue to harm an unacceptable number of patients and that it is likely that most people will experience at least one diagnostic error in their lifetime, sometimes with devastating consequences. And a new study released by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, with the assistance of John Hopkins University Evidence-Based Practice Center in Baltimore, estimated that roughly 7.4 million people are inaccurately diagnosed out of 130 million annual visits to hospital emergency departments in the United States. And some 370,000 patients may suffer serious harm as a result. The literature review used for the study covered publication dates from January 2000 to September 2021 and identified 19,127 abstracts, screened 1,455 full-text studies, and included 279 studies that addressed the key issue of the study. Average disease-specific error rates ranged from 1.5% for myocardial infarction to 56% for spinal abscesses. An estimated 5.7% of all emergency department visits had at least one diagnostic error. If overall rates are generalizable to all U.S. emergency department visits, this would translate to 7.4 million emergency department diagnostic errors annually, 2.6 million diagnostic adverse events with preventable harms, and 371,000 serious misdiagnosis-related harms, including more than 100,000 permanent high-severity disabilities and 250,000 deaths. Key process failures were errors in diagnostic assessment, test ordering, and test interpretation. Most often, these were attributable to inadequate knowledge, skills, or reasoning, particularly in atypical or otherwise subtle case presentations. Although estimated emergency room error rates are low and comparable to those found in other clinical settings, the number of patients potentially impacted is large. Not all diagnostic errors or harms are preventable, but they say wide variability in diagnostic error rates across diseases, symptoms, and hospitals suggests improvement is possible. However, the New York Times reported 
that the study was met with criticism from the American College of Emergency Physicians, whose president called the conclusions misleading, incomplete, and erroneous, and said the reliance on studies conducted outside of the U.S. may have led to overestimates of mistakes. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.